Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Clinton Donnelly Show. This is a really special episode. We have with us the, the infamous John Deaton, who has been very active in the XRP uh, Ripple lawsuit. And anybody in the XRP community knows what a fabulous hero he's been. And we're going to take some time today to kind of dissect what happened with this XRP case. What does this tell us about what the SEC is doing? And just kind of tease out some of the ramifications on this. I hope you enjoy this show, and it's going to be a real good one. Welcome to the Clinton Donnelly Show, where we explore how taxation and regulations of cryptocurrencies affect your daily life as an investor. Clinton has a law degree in international financial regulation. He is an enrolled agent and certified as a cryptocurrency anti-financial crime specialist. He has clients in 71 countries. He is one of the top experts in crypto taxation in the US. This show is sponsored by CryptoTaxAudit.com, the income tax experts for U.S. crypto investors. Are you frustrated with using online crypto tax services to calculate capital gains? Are you a high-frequency trader, DeFi, NFT, play-to-earn, or quail investor? Nothing is too complicated for the experts at CryptoTaxAudit.com. Are you frustrated that your accountant doesn't understand crypto taxes? Crypto Tax Audit uses a proven, bulletproof crypto tax return methodology to prepare a tax return that doesn't attract the attention of the IRS. Crypto Tax Audit also offers an exclusive audit defense membership service. It's like car insurance for your tax return. If your return gets selected for an audit of crypto reporting, they will defend you at no additional charge for the entire life of the audit. No one offers anything like audit defense membership. Go to CryptoTaxAudit.com to learn more and schedule a private tax consultation now. The opinions expressed in this show are not legal advice. Tax and regulations are complicated. Your situation is unique, so you should always consult a tax professional. I have with us today, John Deaton. John, thank you for joining the Clinton Donnelly Show. Thank you, Clint, for having me. I appreciate it. So, John, tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay. Myself, uh, I'm a lawyer, uh, live in Rhode Island. I'm from Detroit. Um, was eight years in the Marine Corps. I was a lawyer in the Marine Corps, trial lawyer. I've spent most of my uh, career outside of the Marine Corps, where I was a federal prosecutor and defense attorney, representing people who contract a rare form of cancer called mesothelioma. I'm sure your audience have seen commercials about mesothelioma. It's only caused by asbestos. I represent those hardworking people who unfortunately all die from it. And that's pretty much what I've done until December 22nd, 2020, when the Ripple lawsuit was filed. I I kind of accidentally got into this thing called securities law involving crypto. And that's where I am today. So you really knew nothing about securities law before the Ripple case started. But ne you're ne never you're heard like, of Howie. I had never heard of Howie. <laughs> you're you just went after that section of the law. You just dug in. I mean, you you became a commanding force in the entire effort. Well, listen, I mean, I you know, a lot of there's so much hype given about someone. I mean, there are certain areas like you you know tax law. Now, there are certain areas of the law that I say, hey, you know, you got to stay away from that unless you really are experienced. And taxes would be one of those areas. But when you're talking about reading a Supreme Court case like Howie and applying this 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 test to the facts of the case, I mean, any lawyer could do it. You could do it. I could do it. And so uh, it didn't take a genius. 
Clint to figure out that the SEC was attempting to do something that it had never done before. It was extending this Howie case into the secondary markets, you know, uh, and encroaching on people's property rights and their right to engage in, in asset transactions. Uh, people who had no idea of a company called Ripple, people who had never heard of Brad Garlinghouse, yet the SEC was saying, oh, you're in a common enterprise with Brad Garlinghouse and Ripple, even though you've never heard of them and weren't buying XRP because of them. And so it didn't take, you know, you don't have to be a securities lawyer to read it and say, whoa, whoa, this is this is crazy. And so that's how I got involved. That's incredible. Hey, you were before we started, you were telling me a little little story about your adventure dealing with the IRS. <laughs> well, listen, brother, you are a better man than I am. I would tell you that because um, I've only had one real experience with the IRS in 2012. Um, I got a notice that I was getting audited for 2009, you know, uh, and I was like, ah, shit, I've never been audited. Uh, and I call my accountant. I'm like, you know, let's meet him right away. I call the, the, the agent and I said, well, listen, I can meet you tomorrow. I just, you know, let's get this going. And she was like, well, never, no one's ever been this enthusiastic. I said, listen, I'm not enthusiastic. Here's the thing. I pay my taxes. If I owe you money because I took a deduction that I'm allowed to or something, I'll pay it. If, if I overpaid, I want my money back, right? Uh, but let's get this over with. So she meets me and it's March. And she says, can we make a commitment that this audit will be over by this year? By, by she said by the end of November and I look at her and I go are you crazy why why would this I'm a simple operation I got like eight employees I said why would this take eight months of my life up and then they extended it into 2010 uh and then and they, they were they were coming in and you know Clint when you open a law firm I just went on my own you know you sort of like on the job training and I made mistakes that someone like you would be like, oh, my God, John. And the mistakes I made were simple things like I didn't make copies of every deposit I got, like the actual check that came in and scan it in so that when the IRS agent said, hey, you know, this $12,000 deposit, I want to see the source of it, the checks. I didn't, I didn't save all that. So I had to go to the bank and ask for them to give me the copies of the deposits. And it just ran... When it was all said and done, I ended up overpaying by 30 grand one year and underpaying by 10 another year. So I ended up getting like 16 grand when all was said and done in my favor. But I would have rather donated that to charity and then left me alone for the nine months. They tied my staff up. It just made no rhyme or reason. It's the government at work. And so uh, that's the only experience I've had. And, you know. I, I never want to get audited again, not because I'm hiding anything, but because, you know, the government doesn't, they're not efficient, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, welcome to my world. I mean, you should have become a tax lawyer after that. It, it is a drama. I mean, and with tax, when someone gets audited, you're, you're just stressed out about everything. Why are they asking this? You don't know why. What are they going to look for? What didn't I do right? right. This tension, especially I, I defend people who are crypto investors. So I had one couple who IRS started not in 2017, went to 18 and 19, three years. And these guys were gamer, about 100,000 transactions a year. Wow. So, you know, he stayed at home while the wife went to work at a hospital. And uh, he stayed at home. He was a professional gamer. Like, he, you know, he would buy a magic sword for uh, $40,000 and he'd sell it for forty, you know, $45,000. And that's how he made his money, right? Magic right. swords. Uh, but the audit just every month, the, the the slowness at which the IRS progresses, yeah. the fear and the terror and not knowing how much they're going to come after you for. And then it's, you know, the conversation, the wife saying, I told you not to do that. Why would you do that crypto stuff? You know, and it just like you know, at the dinner table at night when you're laying in bed, the tension, you know, they couldn't wait to get out of it. Finally, we got to a point where like the deadline, because there's a statute of limitations, the right. deadline was coming up and the woman goes, all right. She wanted to analyze everything and she came up with one transaction. We couldn't quite trace the source of that, but we'd already aggressively recalculated other things. So that mixed together. 
the guy had to pay. He it was he, they wanted three thousand dollars for 2017, just 17. He agreed to pay that. And then uh, the other two years remained open on the statute of limitations. Turns out this auditor was looking to transfer to another, you know, getting promoted out, which probably couldn't wait to have happen soon enough. So she wrapped up the other two audits, like no change. We're happy. We're done. Wash our hands. So we got out of it with three thousand. I told him we could have bought it, but. You know, but the thing is, the fear, the tear, the mounting costs, and all that stuff. Well, it's, it, you know, uh, it's not, but Clint, it's not just that. It's it's a certain level of competency too, because she ended up sending me a letter that, like, I just it was unbelievable. The first thing I said to her is, I said, "Listen, have you ever audited a plaintiff's attorney?" where I'm not a billable guy. I don't have billables to show you here. You know, on this case, I front the cost. And if I, if I settle it, I make a third of the settlement. And, and I said, have, have you done that kind of lawyer? Because it's different. And she said, oh, yeah, of course I have, blah, blah, blah. So when it's all said and done, I said, because, you know, two thirds of the money that comes in isn't mine, right? So if, if I, do a, <laughs> I do a settlement for 90000 the they're going to 1099 the Deaton Law Firm 90000 But 60000 is the client money. And 30,000 is gross revenue for the Deaton law firm. And so she explained it. So then she ends up after her magic or whatever, six months later, they tell me I owe a million dollars and I, and I go, and it's in writing and I call my accountant and of course I'm stressed out and I'm like cussing <laughs> through the phone, like what the F is going on? And it, because it was money in my IOTA account for clients that I had to hold back to pay Medicare liens, Blue Cross Blue Shield liens, you know, and Medicare is the federal government. And the federal government passed a law called the uh, uh, Medicare Secondary Payee Act. If I don't hold money back to pay a Medicare lien out of the settlement, they can find me $1,000 a day. For every day I'm in violation. So they make it punitive. So if Medicare puts a lien of, you know, 60 grand on the case, I hold that money back and I'm negotiating with Medicare, trying to get it down for the client's benefit. Whatnot. But anyways, so I had a bunch of money that I didn't disperse to the client that was in the bank because it's for liens. And she goes, well, that money's there. Uh, I go, listen, first of all, it's money I'm holding for the federal government, A. Two, it's client money. It's not even taxable as income for them because it's personal injury. I go, so you're taxing me on money that's not mine. That's, you know, and so it was just fundamental competency. And I explained to her, I've said, remember that first meeting we had? And I tried to explain to you that I'm not a billable attorney and, I, and I'm a plaintiff's attorney and I front the cause. It just went over her head and, you know, but, but when I saw that thing come in that said, I owed $1.1 million in back taxes. <laughs> and then the penalties on top of that, I was like, well, I'll, I'm just going to close because I'm done. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm going to have to hire a guy like you and, <laughs> and fight him, which I would have. <laughs> I'm anyways, she, so typical. she relented. We showed her that it wasn't my money and all that, and 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 relented, and they retracted it. But it's just the whole process, uh, uh, really hurts a small business. That's all. Oh, it's, it, it's such a distraction from just trying to grow a business. I mean, when they went from you owe us a million to they ponied up uh, sixteen what, grand. twenty thousand, six, yeah. you know, to you. That's a tremendous, you know, turnaround. That's congratulations on that. But it is, but the whole journey is stressful. There's almost like no other aspect of our personal lives where we intersect the government more than paying our taxes. Most of the time, it's a one-way street. You know, you're doing sales tax, your income is withheld, uh, your wages, and it's a one-way street. You just never want to hear back from them, you know. And it's a scary, scary thing. Oh, yeah, it's one way. In fact, when they showed me, you know, in 2009, uh, I had underpaid my taxes you know not it was like about nine grand something like that uh they disallowed something deduction i think or whatever but in 2010 i overpaid i had to pay them interest on that 
nine grand that I underpaid, but they didn't give me interest on the on the money I overpaid, right? So it, it really is a one-way street. You 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 said it perfectly. Well, I, I hate to give you this advice, John, but you need a lawyer. <laughs> you know, never never be your own lawyer anyhow let's talk about xrp all right uh, i went on to the sec website and they have an, a page that lists all their enforcement actions really only up to march and they've done over 200 crypto enforcement actions and many of them are in individuals basically who are engaging in what they characterize as some fraud everything's about fraud with them or unregistered securities. But then uh, a lot of them had to do with corporations, Ripple's in there, uh, Coinbase, Binance, everybody that they're going after. Uh, you know, the SEC is, I mean, most, I say this because I didn't really realize the breadth at which they were going after crypto enforcement. I also saw they had a press release saying they were hiring another additional 20 staffers to, to that particular department of crypto enforcement. Uh, and certainly there is a lot of fraud that uh, needs to be clamped down on kind of like FTX, which they didn't do. Uh, and, you know, but early on back in, as you said, in December of 2020, they came after Ripple and it just shocked the entire market. Uh, everybody was just uh, flabbergasted about this. Now, a lot of people said, well, that's just a Ripple problem. But then as they did more enforcement actions, people realized that this was just the tip of the iceberg of where the SEC was going. And, you know, on the Internet, everybody vilifies Gary Gensler. You know, they, they put Hitler mustaches on him and everything about that. But, uh, you know, he's he's just one guy, you know, and I I uh, he's not stupid. He's been a professor. Uh, and in this field, I heard just recently on another podcast that he was actually Hillary Clinton's campaign finance manager when she was running for president. I mean, this guy is connected. He knows his stuff. Uh, and yet this this lawsuit began. Can you summarize the XRP case and where we are right now? Yeah, well, the thing about it is and, you know, I would be the first to applaud ASCC had they focused their attention not on these good actors who may have violated, you know, 1934 disclosures, right? Uh, that the Securities Act is of 1934, pre-internet, pre-Google, where, you know, people didn't have access to information. It's all about whether or not the company made a disclosure statement, right, and reduced asymmetry on knowledge. You know, a strict liability case of good actors who just, you know, like me, maybe I I underpaid my taxes by a couple grand. Doesn't make me a bad guy. I just, you know, made a mistake. Uh, they didn't focus on the Alex Machinskis or the Sam Bateman, you know, frauds of the world who are out there promising uh, unrealistic returns that would be indicative of like a Ponzi kind of scheme. Instead, they focused on you know, regular actors, you got the library case, you've got the ripple case. And so uh, a lot of people were shocked, Clint, because XRP was the third largest crypto. It had battled Ethereum for the number two spot for years. It had been traded in the United States for seven and a half years. There was a FinCEN settlement in 2015 where they declared it convertible virtual currency. And so uh, they were surprised that because the complaint retroactively said that all XRP sales from the beginning of time until the end of the world, they didn't use it in those exact words, but that's functionally what the, the complaint said, that all sales of XRP. So when I read the complaint, I was expecting them to do what you normally do. You normally say this company on this day offered and sold, marketed and packaged an asset that that scheme-wise uh, made the investor give money to rely on their efforts as an investment contract under Howie. And it's limited to the transactions by that company. So I was expecting the complaint to be just about Ripple and when Ripple sells XRP. When you get to the first paragraph, number one, it says XRP is, quote, a digital asset security. So they're like, well, wait a minute. They're, they're calling XRP itself a security. That that's a first. That that's never been done like that. And then you you go and you see that they're talking about future sales, present sales, and past sales. 
And then when you read the complaint, it was what I said about earlier. It was reaching into the secondary market. So someone who bought XRP, who never heard of Ripple, but bought it because they were going to utilize the ledger to transfer money or the DEX, the decentralized exchange that's part of the XRP ledger. Or maybe they were investing in money and they just said, listen, I'm going to buy Bitcoin, ETH and XRP, this new asset class, and I'm just going to pick the top three. Uh, that's not that doesn't meet Howie because you're not relying on the efforts of these promoters. You're not unaware that they even exist in many times. And so that's what made this case so different. And people like me and, and the XRP community were saying to the rest of the world, hey, you guys are just saying it's about Ripple, but they could extend this to every other crypto asset if you're not careful. And that's, in essence, what Gensler's, you know, ultimate plan was because he obviously went against Coinbase uh, and sued Coinbase, saying that multiple tokens are also uh, digital asset securities. And that's the fight we find our, ourselves in right now. It's It really is a, a regulator. Gensler testified when he was confirmed as SEC chair. And he used to be CFTC chairman under Obama, and he was Hillary Clinton's chief financial officer for her campaign in 2016. He wrote the check for the infamous dossier, if you believe it or not. And so <laughs> deep state. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's as deep state connected as you're going to get. And so um, he basically testified that that crypto fell out in this regulatory gap. It, it was There was no market regulator for it. It was outside the SEC and the CFTC. And then he turns around and, of course, says, no, everything but Bitcoin's a security. And so, you know, you have a regulator who has this new asset class and he wants to get jurisdiction over the entire thing. And, and that's where we're at now. So the it was a lot of drama going back and forth, and the, both sides requested summary judgment, which means that there's no need to have an official trial. We they felt that there's no real debated material facts, and they felt that there was enough information on the that was that they all agreed on that the judge should be able to make a decision without having a trial, which uh, the judge took a long time to do. I remember at the conference he said. The judge will no go not go past August because otherwise you'd have to explain to Congress. And, he, and of course, in July, a month <laughs> before, she comes out with that opinion. Uh, and the opinion was kind of a split decision that relative to institutional investors, she agreed with the SEC that offers had been made and that it was being treated as a unregistered security. But for the individual investor, people buying on secondary markets through Coinbase and these sorts of exchanges, that that was not uh, a say a promotion of an unregistered security. So the SEC lost, Ripple won. Same thing for the people they directly paid. Uh, and I guess Ripple won just about everything else after that. Where do we stand now? I mean, because there's obviously both sides kind of disagree with the split decision. And there's obviously a chance to appeal. Uh, or and, and there's also a window that actually there may be a trial. I understand uh, yeah. for some yeah. matters. Tell me, tell me what's uh, what li what lies ahead. All right. Well, basically, the judge did what you said. Uh, the SEC classified basically three types of cells: institutional cells, program programmatic cells on exchanges, and then these distributions to independent contractors or employees where they gave XRP. Uh, and the judge simply applied the Howey test to each one of those types of cells and found what you said institutional cells she said you know there's underlying contracts they were holding it sometimes a cold storage they're waiting for maybe ripple to help improve the ecosystem that's a contract a programmatic sales we don't know who the buyer is or the seller you can't rely on the efforts of someone that you don't even know is selling it to you that kind of scenario she said that's not a security and neither is the the uh, there's no in, no one invested money. So you don't even meet the first prong of Howie on the XRP giveaways, if you will. And so Ripple disagrees with the decision on one area, and that would be their ODL platform, because their ODL platform, the the person buying XRP, the institution 
they're only holding it for a few seconds to transfer, you know, from one fiat to another as a bridge currency. And they were going to attack that issue during the remedies section, you know, uh, which would be the next, not the trial, but they were going to go to the judge because the judge has to figure out what's the appropriate penalty Ripple should pay. And Ripple was going to say, hey, judge, let's distinguish ODL. But the SEC decided that they were going to ask for an interlocutory appeal. And your audience, all it needs to know about that is that's an means early appeal. Usually an appeal is after all jury trials are over, all summary judgments are over, the judge rules, there's nothing left to litigate, and it goes up to the higher court. An interlocutory early appeal means when one party says, even though we're not completely done, we think the appellate court should rule because judge, you got it wrong. And the SEC says that her uh, decision on the other two categories that Ripple won are wrong. Uh, the judge has to agree. No party has a right to an interlocutory appeal. You have to ask two people. You have to ask the judge permission and then if the judge, Torres, says, yes, SEC, I'll let you ask the Second Circuit whether to grant it, that's what would happen. If Judge Torres says no, they don't get to ask, they don't get to go up for an early appeal. If Judge Torres says, I'm going to allow you to ask the Second Circuit whether they want to hear it early, you can. And what I believe is going to happen is that she's going to deny it. Ripple's objecting. They're saying... Uh, this early appeal makes no sense because we still have these other issues, the trial of the two executives to go through. And uh, there's no reason that we should do an early appeal because it uh, doesn't meet the standard, which we don't need to get into. I believe I'm very confident, you know, I could always be wrong, but I'm very confident that she's going to deny the interlocutory appeal. And then we're going to have her ruling um moving forward for the next you know couple of years and there is a chance that crypto and I, I can tell you now there's a chance that the coinbase motion to dismiss before judge Faya, who is also in the same southern district as uh, torres that could be the biggest win for crypto moving forward i'm not saying it's going to happen i'm just saying it, it's possible where the, the judge says that blind bid ass of digital assets on an exchange where the buyer doesn't know who the seller is as a matter of law the howie test is inapplicable to that type of transaction she could say that the staking part of the coinbase case can go forward but she's ruling dismissing the case because the sec doesn't have jurisdiction over secondary market sales of digital assets that could be the biggest decision we get in crypto after, right after the ripple case this is such a fascinating question uh, now what's the time frame on uh judge torres making her decision on the interlocutory uh, by the end of the year i would say okay. is the best i could i could say i don't think she'll go into january you know i, I mean it, it could come out in the next couple of weeks it's due really you know uh i i would say She's going to take her time, You're at least looking at like 60 days. And so we're at least looking at another month. But I'm, conf I'm comfortable saying by the end of the year, just to be safe. Well, I, I do know that when the judge came out with this ruling, I, I, I think most people didn't understand what was going to happen, what the judge would think. And this is really the SEC has been engaging in uh, regulation by enforcement. what most people have called it. That is that there are no clear regulations about the treatment of digital assets from the SEC point of view. And they're just basically taking the existing rules, as you said, from 1934 and applying them uh, as though, you know, trying to make it fit almost like a square hole and a round peg type of thing and throwing it back to the courts. Some people would say, you know, SEC has been waiting for Congress to give guidance in this space. But if you think about the securities case, the you know, law, which was passed in 1934, the financial collapse happened back in 29, 1929. You know, there should have been laws passed in 1930 or 31. Why are we waiting for a whole nother president to come in place uh, in, in Roosevelt to have a 1934 ruling? I mean, 
I guess the hands of Congress moved very slow, but this court case has been out there for three years. Uh, cryptos have been in the marketplace for, well, in, in a significant way, almost 10 years. So uh, it it is shocking, I think, uh, how that that they've had to resort to this, forcing the courts to rule in this way. Yeah, I mean, the, the, listen, there's no doubt we can all agree that Congress should do its job and, you know, should lay out regulatory rules, regulatory guidance for crypto, designate it's the CFTC that is going to oversee crypto assets. Does the, does the SEC only have jurisdiction over initial coin offerings where the technology is not yet built? That meets sort of the, the, the Howey test. Right. You just hold the money, then you build the, the technology and everyone's waiting and relying on you. But everything else goes to the CFTC. But let's just be honest. We're going into an election year. Um, it's not there's never going to be something that is going to pass the House, the Senate and be signed by the president. Elizabeth Warren chose to go anti-crypto as part of her campaign for re-election in the U.S. Senate. And she's on the banking committee in the Senate. She is, you know, for sure, the most influential senator in banking. And, um, you know, she's friends with Gary Gensler and, and uh, they chose to go down that road. So we're, we're, we're stuck with these court decisions. The only good news is as long as it's taking, that's the downside, but the system's working, meaning that the courts are putting the SEC into check, right? We've got every court so far that has reviewed the SEC has slammed it as, as being unreasonable. You know, we got a grayscale ruling that came out not too long ago where the appellate court said the SEC was arbitrary and capricious in their denial of a spot Bitcoin ETF. You got the Ripple decision. You've got um, other judges uh, in the Voyager bankruptcy and uh, taking the SEC to task. Judge Netburn in the Ripple case called the SEC hypocrites and said they, they lack faithful allegiance to the law. I mean, that's just powerful, powerful stuff from judges who are holding this branch who is, is an unelected bureaucrat, bureaucracy, you know, out of control. And so... Hopefully, we'll continue to get more victories in court. So uh, if a new president gets elected, let's say, you know, non-democratic, uh, does he have the power to replace the SEC chairman or is that more of a, an appointment later on? Well, the SEC is historically what happens is, is that, um, yes, he can he can pick an SEC chair, but um, uh you know, that's a great question. I, I don't want to misspeak because I'm not a procedure guy on the SEC. Uh, and and uh, because my memory serves me, the SEC is supposed to be independent. I don't think the president can necessarily fire, uh, uh, but can designate who's chair. You know what I mean? I don't know if you can get someone immediately replaced if their term hasn't expired. But generally so what happens is, is one of the commissioners. He happens yeah. to be the chair of the commissioners. That, right. That the deal? Okay. There's one of he's one of five. And Hester Peirce, for example, corrected um, Tony from thinking crypto when he just sort of tongue in cheek said, you know, Gary Gensler, you know, I know he's your boss. And she goes, ho, 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 ho. No, no, he's not. He's chair. And he and he gets to dictate the agenda and all of that. But he's just one other commissioner like me. You know what I mean? So interesting. Yes. Hey, uh, I thought one of the interesting dramas that was happening amongst many uh, on the Ripple case, John, was the whole thing about the Hinman documents. What was the issue? What was the drama? I, there was a release of some redacted documents. And, and what do you think those documents, what effect do you think that had on the final decision? Well, let, 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 he was, uh, Hinman was director of the of corporation finance and Jay Clayton, his friend was the chairman of the SEC just on a, okay. Thank uh, you. Uh, no, that's fine. Um, the bottom line is he, he had, he had a lot of power because the director of, um, of, of corporation finance, they, 
decide IPOs. They give the regulatory guidance and all that. So a very, very powerful uh, person. I would say the second most powerful person after the SEC chair. Well, he was director of corporation finance. And, you know, your audience and everybody's familiar with when you ask Hester Peirce or Gary Gensler or anyone else, Jay Clayton, when he was chair, hey, what about Ethereum? What about XRP? What about this? They always say, we're not going to talk about specific tokens or specific projects. You always hear that. Gensler refused to answer the question about Ethereum and said, I'm not going to talk about specific tokens. But on June 14th, 2018, Bill Hinton got up and he gave a big speech where he declared that Bitcoin, but not just Bitcoin, Ethereum was not a security and that sales of Ethereum, regardless of what it might have been when it started, he said his quote was setting aside the fundraising that accompanied the ICO modern day sales and transactions of Ethereum are not securities. That was huge news. And then he went on CNBC and he said, we at the SEC, we at the SEC believe that Ethereum is not a security and blah, blah, blah. And so that just gave Ethereum regulatory clarity. In fact, two months after that speech, Brad Garlinghouse and David Schwartz, the CTO of Ripple, had a meeting with Clayton and Hinman, and Brad Garlinghouse spoke up frustrated and said, Ripple's living in purgatory. You guys gave Bitcoin and ETH a pass. You know, what are you going to say about XRP? And they didn't say anything. They didn't say it's a security. They just said, hey, tell us more about your business, right? Because you know what happened after that. And so... Uh, and then we learned uh, because the SEC took the position that Hinman wasn't speaking for the SEC. He was just speaking for himself. Now, what it turned out is that he had ties to the Ethereum uh, Foundation and the Ethereum ecosystem. His law firm, Simpson Thatcher, was a member of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance which only exclusively promotes Ethereum. And they were promote, they were paying him as an ongoing profit sharing partner, not as a retiree. So he made $15 million while at the SEC from his law firm that's a member of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance where he gives Ethereum a pass. And there's all kinds of other conflicts. And so because the SEC took the position that it was his personal opinion, the judge said, fine, then all the emails and the drafts of that speech are fair game to be discovered by Ripple. You, you have to turn it over. And that was litigated for two years. And finally, finally, it was turned over. And that's when we learned that Hinman called it the Ethereum speech. He had multiple meetings with Joe Lubin at Consensus. He brought in Vitalik to make sure that it was you know, what he called uh, decentralized enough. And, and, uh, and it's been a big controversy ever since because, you know, even before the lawsuit, uh, someone that's universally respected by the name of Joseph Grunfest, he's a former SEC commissioner, he helped the Ethereum folks out. So he's not biased in any way. Uh, he wrote a letter to Clayton and everybody and said, listen, I hear you're going to maybe bring this XRP lawsuit. You shouldn't do that. You're going to destroy billions and billions of dollars of innocent people. And there's no difference between ETH and XRP. you got to treat them the same. And you're showing too much favoritism to, you know, he said these kind of things and yet they ignored it and filed the lawsuit. And so it, it's been, that's the drama that you're talking about, you know. Did the... Those documents showing that there had been bias and a variance of opinions inside, did that really affect the judge's decision? It didn't, it didn't affect the judge's decision, but it will affect the trial of Brad and Chris Lar Brad Garnhouse and Chris Larson, because uh, the SEC must attempt, which they can't do, prove that they were reckless. 
uh, and not knowing that XRP was not uh, a, a security and not knowing that it is a security, excuse me. And so, but the judge, she, she did something very simple and it's a very great, it's a really good decision. It's a sound decision. All she did was, is apply this simple test to each one of those categories that the SEC claimed were um, securities. And there was a lot of controversy, Clint, of the securities bar because she found institutional sales to be securities. And they were like, well, that makes no sense because those are hedge funds and, and, and venture capitalists. They're accredited, sophisticated investors. The Securities Act is supposed to protect the retail unaccredited investor. And you're finding an investment contract for the, the VCs and not them. And, and my answer is, well, that's what happens when you apply 1934 securities laws to modern day blockchain technology. You, you're, you know, it's, it's, you're going to get uh, inconsistent decisions with 1930s policy. And I explained to everyone that the Howey test doesn't have a, a, another factor that says what level of sophistication is the investor. It just does the test apply and it does fine. And so that's where Congress needs to step in. And, and we've seen a lot more Congress people starting, including on the Democratic side, starting after this ripple decision to say, OK, we really need to do something. You know, hopefully they will. That'd be good. I know uh, you know our, our firm, we're members of the Chamber of Digital Commerce. and We're very aggressive about making those comments and educating congressmen and senators and that stuff. Uh, what do you think? There's a proposal out there that uh, the accredited investor, which means that you can't buy certain things unless you're an accredited investor. Right now, the limit, I believe, is $2 million of assets. There's a proposal out there to jump that up to $10 million of assets. How do you feel about that? I, I think it's outrageous, and I'll tell you why. Today, Clint, I'm an accredited investor. I'm 55 years old. I been, did not become an accredited investor until I was 45, right? So I served in the Marine Corps for eight years. I didn't make a lot of money in the Marine Corps. I have a law degree, but I still wasn't an accredited investor because I didn't have enough income or assets, and that's just an insane way to do things. You're favoring, you know, elite people and discriminating against regular people. Uh, my brother served 28 years in the Air Force. He's not an accredited investor because he doesn't have enough money, enough assets. He served his country for 30 years. I mean, it's just when you start applying these arbitrary rules, and, and saying, well, this person we're going to put in the sophisticated category and this person, the non-sophisticated category, just based on a bank account or based on your, your, your W-2s, that's just not a fair system, in my opinion. You know what I mean? And yeah, so they got to think of a way to get more people access to, to, to assets and, and, and capitalism and achieving wealth. We have to expand it, not, you know, close it off. Uh, that's, I appreciate that. Now, I want to ask you a question. You know, if you don't want to answer it, that's fine. But you've obviously thought about this. You've thought about Gary Gensler's behavior. We, we tend to personalize all these SEC activities as being Gary Gensler. And perhaps is the, of course, the head. And he pushes against a lot of people's recommendations, as you have described. He, when he testified on being becoming chairman he said you know he was he didn't have strong opinions about cryptocurrency now he's got strong opinions do you think there is an ulterior motive that he is serving uh in this that that you know some people call it like operation choke point or some broader and maybe this is conspiracy theory but it's really just just a speculation at this point where do you think uh, this impetus is it all flowing straight from him or is he you know, taking shots from uh, other influencers? No, I, I think that, um, first of all, I think that Choke Point 2.0 with the banks, that was all real. I don't think that's a conspiracy theory. Um, you, 
there was a an agenda, an anti-crypto agenda uh, set out. And I believe initially it was to kill crypto, right? They view it as a threat to the reserve currency status or, you know, they a threat to the dollar. And then they realize that they can't kill it off. And Bitcoin's not going to zero. And crypto, not not 20,000 tokens, but crypto, like a, a handful of projects, whatever you want to say, they're going to be around forever and for good. And so I believe, and this might be a little tinfoil hat, I, but I said it on Fox Business. Um, I believe they are trying to protect the incumbents as much as possible, crush crypto until the big guys get involved. And now you're seeing the Black Rocks coming in. You know, five years ago, Larry Fink of Black Rock said, you know, Bitcoin was a distraction. Now he wants a spot Bitcoin ETF. You have NASDAQ going into custody. Um, and so I think that's what we're seeing. I, I think we're going to see uh, a major company buy a part of Coinbase and all of a sudden, you know, Fidelity or a Vanguard or a BlackRock, all of a sudden they own 10% of Coinbase, you know, things like that where they get a bigger slice of the, of the play. And I think, uh, I think we're witnessing that. There's a lot to be said about they, they laugh at you, then they try to ignore you, then, you know, they get together and say, we're not going to let this happen. Then it starts happening. And they're like, well, shit, now we got to like sue them and the regulators got to crush them. And then finally they adopt you or buy you. You know what I mean? And I think that's what we're witnessing. That's, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. Cause that's basically, they're trying to usher in, they're trying to push out this unregulated crypto environment. If I use that phrase and trying to, let the, as you call the big guys, the Merrill Lynch's, the vanguards, these guys buy up uh, the or, or dominate the regulated space, which is where a lot of the institutional people would love to buy cryptocurrency, where maybe even your retirement plan, your 401k, you buy into the, the regulated space. And I think uh, from what we've seen already, uh, there's four coins that are already accepted as commodities, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, and uh, Litecoin. Uh, and maybe a couple others that are maybe not as clear, but uh, they're okay. They're treated as commodities, and there's already a lot of exchanges supporting that. You got uh, Fidelity Investors is heavily set up to support all the other brokerages who want to get into crypto. Franklin Templeton, they're both at consensus, really got to study what they were doing, hiring aggressively. SIBO uh, Digital, which is part of the, which, you know, connected with the Chicago Board of you know, Exchange. You know, they're aggressively supporting spot markets on these coins. Uh, I'm sure at the right point in time, they'll probably bring more coins into that fold. I would highly expect uh, XRP would move into there, maybe a couple of the other big ones like you mentioned. You know, they all want to trade on these coins because they have longevity and, and, and enduring capacity. So, you know, it, I think that crypto market is going to be even bigger than what we're seeing right now, but it's going to be heavily regulated. It's, it doesn't really meet the... Uh, the renegade feel that we've had with cryptos up until now. Yeah, you're, you're, there's no doubt. I mean, I think the one, I think that at this point, they want to keep crypto as centralized as possible. And I think that, you know, if there's one area that they really do want to stamp out, it would be as much of the DeFi space that they can get. Because, you know, they're going to impose... AML KYC standards on, on just about anything and everything they can to try to stamp it out. And the thing about it is guys like you or me, it's not like we're anti-regulation. We've wanted some form of smart tailored regulation because it'll help the industry take off. You know, you just don't want what we have right now, which is, you know, government overreach and intrusion um, in a, in an unclear area of the law and one regulator trying to do a land grab if you will of the asset class um we need some clarity from there but but you know if if we get some smart tailored 
um, legislation that that does make basic disclosures, things that that we should know. There's more transparency in the crypto market. Uh, that's when we take off, you know, and and we reach a different level of uh, what people call the bull market, in my opinion. I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, Gensler, by pursuing the enforcement by regulation, you know, basically, you know, abandoned the opportunity to bring leadership to the space and to bring clarity. Like you, you use clarity, I bring leadership, you know, to help define, you know, the 21st century of how investments are traded. They, they, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be that difficult. You, you get guys, you know, in, that are smart guys like you that can talk about the tax implications and, and, and how to treat crypto and all that. But I mean, just think about where we would be if someone said, OK, let's take XRP or Ripple. What, what what do you have a problem with? And someone says, well, we think Ripple owns too much XRP. OK, so maybe one guidance that we come up with or, or rule is that no one entity can own more than 30% of the outstanding token. I'm just making this up as I'm going with you, right? But now, Ripple might not like that, but hey, there's that's better than no guidance, right? Where you start putting things out there. This thing called sufficient decentralization. What the hell does that mean, right? And then define it somehow. Does it mean so many nodes or does it mean so many validators? Um, uh, is centralization uh, mining or is it something different? Is it uh, the, the token concentration? All you, just imagine if you said, here are these markers that you have to meet. And everybody out there, um, you got three years to meet these markers. If you don't meet these markers, we're going to call you a security. Right? Your token, we're going to treat as a security. If you meet these markers, we're going to treat it as a commodity, a digital commodity and the CFTC be controlled. I mean, we could argue about those markers, right, and have debates. But if there was that, entrepreneurs would have met those guidelines, in my opinion. And we would have, you know, be in a far better place. But instead, unfortunately, we live in a in a regulatory era where they want it vague and they want it unclear so that that can allow them to pick the winners and the losers and selective enforcement and just have maximum prosecutorial options available to them. Because when it's clear, it's clear, right? So that that's that's how I look at it. I think that's great. You know, I think the, uh, I think the chokehold, uh, as we just discussed, I think the whole purpose of that really is to delay, is a delaying tactic because you know, the legal system is very slow. Uh, until they can put in the regulations that they want and create an environment that the big guys, as you say, can take over. I think that's, I, I've always felt that, you know, we in the tax field, we just, uh, you know, you mentioned DeFi. We're submitting a response to the Senate Finance Committee uh, for an RFI that they put out about how to, uh, thoughts about a lot of crypto questions. And really DeFi is one of their most troubling areas. They don't know how to get at it. And part of that is because, it's decentralized. There is no head uh, that you can take over. And uh, when we get back to the Financial Action Task Force and all the AML rules, one of the underlying assumptions in these rules is that there's a central point that we can control them and they will force all the other things to come into bear. Like, you know, we can control the banks. We can go, we can control the bank supervisors, we can control the banks, we can control the lawyers, and they have to divulge stuff, uh, AML-wise, KYC. But with, with DeFi, there is nobody to control. Once the code is released, it's released. And if you've done it correctly, you have you know, updates to that code are decentralized. It's by anonymous people voting their leverage. And uh, you know, there's no person who, who has a centralized obligation anymore to control that. So DeFi fundamentally undercuts uh, the FATF regulatory rules or the 40 principles and just undermines the whole notion that, I mean, FATF basically assumes we can control the financial community because we're going to force every country to comply. The countries will force their banks to comply, their lawyers to comply, their accountants to comply. And DeFi basically says you can't force us. And it's, uh, it's, it's a scary thing. Now, 
my personal, I mean, we're coming towards the end of the interview, but I, mean, I you know, my staff, we have every Monday, we have a, a powwow session on crypto and we spit off a whole bunch of posts for Twitter. But my, my feeling is we've, we've really seen a massive dump of regulations. We finally got regulations from the IRS. Uh, these are regulations dictated by the Infrastructure and Inflation Reduction Act. And these are regulations. That means they're law. All right. So they've posted them. There's a 60 day comment window, which our firm's putting together a response on that. Uh, we're also working with the Chamber of Digital Commerce on that. But uh, this is like really the first time we've gotten regulations. And the arc, you know, and, and a lot of what's gotten the publicity on this, John, is the idea that more people are going to have to file 1099. Not people, but companies will have to file 1099s. Coinbase will file a 1099. Uh, Anybody, you know, maybe even DeFi networks. I mean, there's a lot of guesswork out there. Now, a 1099 basically reports income to the IRS. It's like the story you told at the very beginning about uh, your court case settlement. So you'd get a $90,000 payout. Right. Well, there's a 1099 issued on that. It doesn't tell the IRS that you have expenses. It doesn't tell the IRS you have to give 60000 away or that there's liens on the remainder of it. Right. Uh, it you know, it just tells the IRS there's 90,000. So they use that to come up with what they call total positive income on somebody. And uh, uh, and we have dealt with a lot of audits because the rules for creating those 1099s up until now have been very conflictory. They don't match tax paying rules, et cetera. I had one client had a Coinbase said he had $4 million in 2018 in terms of proceeds. Uh, got the IRS very excited when he didn't report any of it. Turns out he had a $17,000 net loss when we actually calculated it. So these things are very misleading. But uh, the other things that are happening with this law is that it's totally restructuring how we calculate gain. It puts a significant burden back on the individual brokerages. In this case, it would be like a you know uh, Coinbase and Kraken to calculate uh, the gain. Uh, there's a lot of rules in terms of how you can, uh, which tokens you sell. They have to sell when they sell them. Uh, then we move into a whole other set of rules that get in. That I mean, basically, it's gonna it it's gonna it puts a lot of uh, knowledge of who the KYC AML obligations on people through the tax law. I think the third now that's going to go into effect probably December or January. Uh, I think the third uh, this year. I, I expect. It okay. depends on how if it's if, if it goes into effect December, then it applies to the 2024 tax year. If it goes into effect in January, that is when the, the regulations become final. If it's in January, then it'll affect the following year, 2025. OK, uh, and fortunately, it's not retroactive. So but the conversion from how you used to calculate gain to how you're now going to calculate gain is going to be a nightmare for people. Um, the. I think the, and we've seen things in these regulations. There's actually they've reserved they've reserved certain paragraphs as being just reserved. I mean they haven't filled it in yet. You know they come out with paragraph H. But there's no paragraph I, and then there's paragraph J. There is something there. So you know, well, what what are you holding out for? I mean we've we've talked about this. What what's going to go in there? You know, okay. so it's not good. So the other thing I think the 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 third unfolding of this operation checkpoint, my my prediction, is going to be coming from FinCEN. FinCEN is the Financial Crime Enforcement Network. It's the financial intelligence unit for the United States. It's basically the gearbox by which all anti-money laundering regulations come to bear. And I believe all they have to do, it's a very simple thing for them to do, is to designate a variety of digital asset platforms or you know brokers or money movers or wallets just designate them as financial institutions and then they're subject to fbar and uh ultimately irs uh, uh foreign asset disclosure rules and when that happens the financial disclosure rules came into place in uh 2010 obama signed the fatca law which was the foreign uh foreign uh, account tax compliance act and this was a very radical law it forced every bank in the world to send twice a year to the irs the account balance of every u.s taxpayer in their banks all over, all over the world and this was uh, this law resulted in the collapse of 
Swiss bank secrecy. The Swiss banks are no longer secret. They, they caved under the pressure and they disclose everything. So now, what we would do for uh, the FACTA law is actually an IRS-based law. So you'd be reporting to the IRS uh, on Form 8938 the, uh, all your foreign accounts. So that would, you know, right, our company, we always report them, but it's not 100% clear. But like, you have to report your Binance account, your KuCoin accounts. If you're trading on a, a DeFi platform, what was the maximum value of your assets now, this law is kind of, it really just looks at what's the maximum value during the year your assets on that account. And in one level, that's kind of innocuous, but on the other level, failure to report can really set you up for a bad situation uh, for not reporting. You know, if they really want to talk to you, if they see you didn't report something, they now can switch to, uh, as you know, you know, penalties. You go from a 20% penalty to a 40% penalty, uh, and they can start to hit you with fraud and these sorts of things. So it's, it gets very... Uh, it gets very sticky. Uh, and are, they write, are they writing in there like presumptions? If you don't report, there's a presumption, you know, against you because they, they make it punitive. You know, when they I do. Well, the uh, you remember when they were going after that a special prosecutor, Mueller, who went after Trump for the yeah. Russia gate thing. Right. They went after a guy. Russia, 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 <laughs> Russia, Russia, Russia. Yeah, yeah. If I say it enough, it's true. Uh, and they went after a guy. Uh, Paul, I can't remember his last name, but uh, but he was Trump's campaign manager for three months in the summer before he got elected. Obviously, he wasn't that good, but he was an influential guy. He was a mover and shaker. He had been yeah, a, I mean, a Manafort, Paul Manafort. Manafort, there you go, Manafort. They eventually indicted him. He went to prison, not because of anything he did for the Trump campaign, not because of anything he did for the Russians or the Ukrainians. They sent him to prison because he had 33 counts of FBAR violations where he told his accountant, I have no foreign bank accounts. Turns out he had 33 foreign bank accounts in Ukraine, in wow. Cyprus, and some other countries where he was stashing away, you know, large, many, many, many millions uh, here from of payouts that he was getting. He never reported them. They got him on the FBAR violations which is a massive financial penalty. Plus they did fraud and they threw him in jail. Uh, uh, so it was just, uh, this is, it's, it's a different approach to enforcement. And you've probably seen this where they basically create penalties around you. And if you don't do it right, you get smacked with some really aggressive penalties uh, that can send you to jail or really bankrupt you. And that's, that's kind of a sad approach that we have in Congress these days. No, ab absolutely. Absolutely. The, we're also seeing a trend. This is just a side comment, but we're seeing a trend where the anti-money laundering laws go two ways. One is we're trying to keep dirty money from coming into the clean system, right? So we're cracking that. Where those coins come from? Are they dirty? All right. The flip side to that is uh, what's called the combating financial terrorism. So, or, or financing of terrorism. So this is the pro process where clean money gets filtered to dirty actors, okay, bad actors. So a, a frequent way of doing this is you give to a charity, you know, you give it to, uh, you know, the, the Children of ISIS Foundation. Well, it goes to fund some sort of, you know, dastardly terrorism organization. Well, what we're starting to see now is they're tweaking that sort of thing for banks and they're shutting down, like we saw this just recently with, uh, Nigel Farage, he's made a big issue out of it. His private bank, Coots Bank, I don't know if you heard about this, he, uh, they shut down his account. Now the basis for doing that, it didn't really come out well in the news, but the basis they did that was they said he was a terrorist. He was basically, he was engaging what we considered domestic terrorism, wow. inciting uh, insurrection and things like this. You, you can kind of see this is happening in the US. I mean, they're, they're, they're taking this whole January 6th thing as insurrection. They're already starting to talk about Donald Trump was leading an insurrection. I just saw this in the press recently, you know, and, you know, a yep. bank could easily use that as justification to shut someone's account down. And you have no, uh, they don't talk to you about it ahead of time. That's part of the uh, AML rules. Is there's no talking. So you just get shut down. Goodbye. Not talking. The mere, to you. The, mere, the mere allegation and you're shut. Down. The mere allegation or just because you say things that doesn't agree with, uh, say, the, the government narrative, 
right. uh, you're shut down. And, and we're seeing this, of course, we've seen this on social media, but when you bring it to banks, it really hits home uh, yeah. in a big way. You, you, you can, like you said, you can bankrupt people. You could. It's. Uh, I've had. Uh, I've, I've been trying to create. We've created a moving my company from a sole proprietorship to a, an incorpor- a corporated entity. It's taken me eight months to go from incorporated to get all the bank accounts open. I mean, that's. It's. I don't know. If people appreciate that. It's very difficult, and it's difficult to create one, let alone have two. And most businesses, you know, have individuals have one bank account, maybe two. And if you get one shut down or both of them shut down, you're you're completely locked out of the financial system. I mean, that, it that's a crisis. Can't pay can't pay the mortgage, can't pay the bills. I mean, you're really crushed. So this is kind of a now. I'm not, that's maybe I, maybe I ramble a little bit because it's late on the call, but I think this is a, a an implication of the third uh, choke point roll down of where we have uh, you know the FinCEN would crack down on the AML side. We really there is no clarity right now. Once we once the IRS or once FinCEN and US decide they're going to enforce on AML uh, in compliance on uh, the foreign exchanges, uh, the foreign uh, wall, unhosted wallets, you know your ledgers, things like that, put a reporting obligation back on them, then. Uh, through the OECD, they copy it in every other country in the world, and it creates a very tough environment for these uh, unregistered exchanges to operate. So, I mean, the, this will take a few years to play out, to be sure. But yeah. what's really exciting uh, for me is to talk to you, John, uh, and, this, and you know, to to watch you be a real trooper. And you're not compensated for this. I mean, you did it out of your own passion. You, I know you submitted an amicus brief. Yep. Uh, to Judge Torres, which was influential uh, for a lot of people, and you've been an inspiration to the entire XRP community, and I have many XRP followers, and I want to thank you on behalf of them, and you know, I just encourage you to encourage others to rise up and to speak and to fight the battle, because we're this is just the first battle, and uh, there's going to be a lot more of it, so I'm really thankful for everything you've done. Thank you. I appreciate the, the kind words. Thanks for having me on, Clint. I appreciate it. It's been fun. I, I tell you what, n- next time I get that audit, I'm giving you a call. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a free consultation. <laughs> I'll see you at the next XRP Army meetup. Yeah, for sure. All right. Thank you. All right. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. Please subscribe, like to this channel, and let others know about this call, this uh, discussion we had. And thank you very much uh, for listening to our show. And remember, taxes are sexy.